Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all you ladies out there. Who are moms. Who are moms. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And it is Mother's Day, and so we just want to say Happy Mother's Day to all of those biological mothers, adoptive mothers, stepmothers, grandmothers, redneck mothers. All of you. Yep. All of you. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. We truly appreciate everything you have done and all the sacrifices you have done and made. Lord knows there's plenty of them. For for us. So (laughs) thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Why do we say the bottom of our hearts? Why couldn't it be from the top of our hearts or... It's Thank from you the with left our ventricle. Whole heart. Thank you from the left ventricle. Anyway, and right you, aorta. Anyway, you get you get you get the idea. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little disappointed. At me? No, not <laughs> at I, you. Not today. What didn't I do? Not this, this time. time. No, not this time. I'm a little disappointed. Um, that what was it? Two weeks ago. We promised cicadas, and there has been nary a bug to be found. Well, because we thought we were on a warming trend. Yeah, we are And not. it's down in the 40s again. Yeah. So. I'm starting to wonder there, if this there, is all part of a vast conspiracy. Well, I know I mean, how you love conspiracy theories. Pe- people were reporting they were seeing cones. Yeah. But I guess the they, chimneys, yeah. I guess the cicadas have decided they're going to... Uh, Stay underground until it warms up just a little bit more. Those were chimneys from their little fireplaces that they're building because it's freaking cold outside. Maybe that wasn't fog. Maybe that was smoke from the fires they're building to keep warm down there. Oh, goodness. You got any new followers this week? Yes, we do. We have Jerry, Janice Prater, and Green. So, the three of you have homework. Go out and... Tell other people about an hour of your life, get them to listen, and you each are responsible for bringing five new followers to the program by this time next Sunday night. Yep. So um, that, get just get after it. That's what you got to do. Our, our big announcement is coming hopefully tomorrow. I think uh, the trailer. You're, you're pushing it. I still got some work to the do. Trailer for, the trailer for the new show, I think, probably is coming out tomorrow. Is that safe to say? No, because I need the right graphics. And when I put the graphics across the web page, it's all stretched out and it doesn't look good. The trailer for the new show will be out by the end of this week. We hope. Apparently, Kim doesn't understand how hard this is to do. Or she wouldn't be nagging at me. I want our new show to premiere. And I feel like the people have spoken. They want it. We have an Instagram following. We have an interview on the books. I say we're ready. It's just give the people what they want, Steve. I I am not a tech expert when it comes to graphics and I'm having difficulty. I'm trying. I'm trying my best. I know you are. And it's it's gonna make it, but we don't want we don't want some well, I mean, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to release it looking like it is now. And once we release it, we want to look like professionals. It gets starts getting doing. sent out to all the different platforms. Yeah. And then it might take a month before those platforms to update. And I don't want that. I want a professional looking product to go out the first time. 
So the 937 podcast is what it's going to be called. And there will be a trailer coming very soon, hopefully with a release date in the trailer. Let's hope so. We're I'm I'm so excited. And we've I've had multiple people ask me because they want to listen to it. Yeah. And it's because be, they it is going to be hugely informative and helpful and they want to know. Only if you live in the nine three seven area code though. Or no, what if you're visiting? Or visiting. Only if you're going to be in the nine three seven area code. Why wouldn't you want to be in the nine three seven area code? It is the greatest area code in the country. Do you realize that now we have another area code for the Dayton Miami Valley? I don't do we though? I heard that that was happening, but I haven't. We're running out of phone numbers. I haven't heard of anybody that has it. I don't think that that's real. I mean, if you just count up, we have approximately one, two, three, four, five. We have about, we're eating up just with us about five or six different phone numbers. That's not our choice. No, it's not my choice. But it's, uh, no, and most of it's invisible. It just transfers automatically, but it has to. Your watch has its own phone number. Well, my iPad has its own phone number. Sorry if you wanted. A 937 and you're getting a whatever the new one is. But I don't think that's a thing. I Because my watch should have had that phone number, the new area code. But it doesn't. I, I, I think that's, I think that's I an know. urban legend. Anyway, speaking of urban legends, we're talking today about something that is decidedly not urban. No. And it is it's something not, of a legend. No, yeah. But a true, it's a true legend. Like it's legendary. In, it's history. It's, it's it's a legendary period. It is very much a true story. Yeah. Incredible, but very true. This week, we're talking about the story of bloody Harlan County, Kentucky. Now, Harlan County is a county in southeastern Kentucky. It's in coal country. And coal is king in Harlan County. It drives the economy and the way of life. And as with many other people in Eastern Kentucky, there is a culture that is unlike any other place. Um, And we've talked about this in a couple of different episodes, the Bears, Wolves, and Alley Cats episode and the Jenny Wiley episode. And and that's not to say that other places in the country don't have their own unique culture. But this is a very unique culture here to... And it's close by us. Yeah, Yeah, it's close by us. And it is your family's culture. Um, So it it does have a special resonance with us. Um, The people of Eastern Kentucky are hill people. Uh, Some people would say hillbillies. Some take that as a pejorative term. And some people have kind of embraced it. But the way the region was settled and the relative isolation has created a culture that's very unique to that area of Eastern Kentucky. And things are certainly changing with new roads and lines of communication that are being built, but a culture of a people doesn't change overnight. Now in Eastern Kentucky, family is number one and family ties run thick. This is- You can attest to that. Yeah, I I can. And this is also too, this is Hatfield and McCoy territory. So, and it's still very much like that today, even in the 21st century. Uh, it, really, honestly, that mentality and that family bond of family comes first before anything else has not changed since the 1800s or before. Before, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Entire families live and grow up within miles of each other. And they're the butt of a lot of jokes, like I said, often referred to as uneducated hillbillies, but that's far from the truth of as far as being uneducated is concerned. The major industry is mining coal, and mining coal runs in the blood of these people. It's what they know how to do, and they do it well. Um, Steve himself has, you want to talk about uh, quote-unquote uneducated, Steve has a degree, he he has a bachelor's degree in this industry, in mining reclamation and energy. So it coal miners are not uneducated people. There is an entire industry, an entire um, course work that goes on to be able to do coal mining. Um, Now this story is about power, money, control, and people wanting the best life for themselves and their families. And before we get into this story, I also want to say that this topic is very emotional for many, many people for a lot of different reasons. You know, there are, in fact, people still alive that live through this story that we're going to tell on both sides of the story. And we're talking about during the 30s when this today's story happened. Um, we have done our best to just bring out the facts because, like I said, it's it's very emotional. There are some people who are very pro-union. There are some people who are very pro-anti-union. And so it's it, it's just a emotional a and raw story. Yeah. Yeah. With that. So we we we're going we have done our best to just bring out the facts of this story. As we went through, I edited it because I had to get a lot of sources, and a lot of the sources were biased. So I had to kind of remove and reward, I don't want to say reward things, but take just the facts of the story and not Which is include the bias. very challenging too, because the it's a very political part of the country as well. These families that we mentioned are, a lot of them get into politics and you see um, it's not uncommon during uh, like, election cycles to see the same family names again and again and again and again running for a sheriff in local government uh, today. So again, things haven't changed all that much from the 30s when this was really in its kind of beginning of its heyday. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the Harlan County War or more commonly known as Bloody Harlan. Um, Bloody Harlan was a series of coal mining-related skirmishes, executions, bombings, and strikes um, that that took place in Harlan County, Kentucky during the 1930s. The incidents involved coal miners and union organizers on one side and coal firms and law enforcement officials on the other. Harlan County was isolated and remote until the nation needed coal for World War I and the railroad made its way into Harlan County and into the coal fields of eastern Kentucky. So when I say it was remote, it was, there weren't a lot of roads in, they weren't real well-traveled, they were crooked, they were curvy, there just wasn't a lot of, people People came over here, they moved in, their families moved in in the 1700s, 1600s, and they pretty much just settled in this region, this part of Kentucky, and they, and they didn't move on. The main issue and point of contention was the rights of Harlan County coal miners to organize and organize. In other words, 
unionize their minds for better pay and working conditions. So let's take some time to paint the picture. Mining coal has always been hard and dangerous work. Coal miners are tough and a very hardened breed. They, they have to with what they have to do. They risk their lives daily to mine coal. Today, there are several ways you're going to get an education here about coal mining. So there are several ways to mine coal. Some mines are surface mines, whether either what we call mountaintop removal or contour mining. Mountaintop removal is exactly as it sounds. The earth is removed. Well, first off, you have the, the seam of coal at a certain level in the mountain. And what mountaintop removal is, is they just start at the top of the mountain and they strip away the different layers of strata or earth rock down to where the seam of coal is. In theory, this gets all the coal in the seam that is within the mountain. Like available to use. Yeah. The, the strip land is removed. As they strip the land off, it's removed. It's piled up in areas. Um, they use very, very large equipment to do this. And we're talking about dump trucks that can haul 200 tons of rock at one time. They use drag lines, which is like a big scoop. If you don't know what a drag line is, look it up to uh, remove the earth and the coal. I have seen some drag lines that you could park four full-size pickup trucks in the bucket. That's big. So that's big. We're talking 325 tons of earth and rock at a time. The bucket capacity of Big Musky, which was one used here in, uh, in Ohio, the bucket capacity was 220 cubic yards. So we're talking a huge operation. That's... 325 tons of rock at one time. That's it's literally, huge. that's yeah, that's yeah. like a whole, that's a whole mountain. Yeah. I could, my cousin Bill drives one of these trucks. After, do, you have, <laughs> do you have to have a CDL for that or honey, what kind uh, of driver's license do you get to drive a 220 cubic yard bucket? Well, I met, they have to get certified, but they're not out on public road. So, well, yeah. Okay. So, after the coal is mined, the earth is supposed to be put back where it came from in the order that it, it was removed from the mountain. This is called reclamation, and the idea is that the terrain, when they get done reclaiming the land, will be the same as it was before. Now, sometimes people will get permission, the community or whoever, will get permission to backfill the valleys and the hollows, or as they say there, the hollers, mm -hmm. so that the land can be flat when, the, when they're done with this. Now, there's a purpose for this because it's, it's mountainous. They don't have a lot of flat land for things. So if you can get permission, you can make flat land here in certain areas, which might be used in Martin County, Kentucky. They've made an airport there, which the county needed. So they, they got permission and they have an airport, or you can build an industrial area that can be created for the betterment of the community. Other types of surface mining is called contour mining. This is where the equipment removes earth and rock around the side of the mountain at the level of the seam of coal, removing the coal as they make their way around the mountain. Think of, uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with a map, a contour line on a map, they just follow that contour line at the same elevation around the mountain, and they keep cutting deeper and deeper into the mountain to, to remove the coal. Contour mining is not near the scale of operation as mountaintop removal. The other main methods of mining coal in eastern Kentucky 
is deep mining or underground coal mining. And I will include in that description the what, what they call punch mines. Now, punch mine is basically where there is an outcrop, a seam of coal, it's exposed, and they use big drills or augers, and they just literally punch holes in the side of the mountain, and they remove the coal. The other method is where miners go underground to remove coal. Now, this is the most dangerous method of coal mining that there is. Underground miners may be working in a seam of coal less than two feet high. That means they're laying down while they work in rock, mud, water. They're just, they have to lay down to do this. There is constant danger of the roof of the mine collapsing or rocks falling at any time. There are buildups. There can be buildups of explosive levels of methane gas, long-term exposure of coal dust, which gets into the miner's lungs and is called pneumoconiosis or more commonly known as black lung disease. There's a high, they, they also have the risk of exposure to high voltage equipment and moving machinery. And we're talking dangerous machinery, basically. I mean, things yeah, that reach out and it, it turns and it scrapes and the, yeah, yeah, and it scrapes the coal off the off the side of the mountain. Teeth is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> it just turns. I mean, it's it's dangerous, dangerous, dangerous work. Now, all mining is dangerous in its own aspects, but I really can't understate the dangers of working in a coal mine underground. Now, we'll come back to that in just a second, but I I did want to ask you. Um, as far as, I guess, preferential mining style, is there one type of mining that is like best for the environment or worse for the environment or more or less harmful to the, the neighboring communities? Well, in any time they work in the coal, certainly you no know, mountaintop removal is going to change the terrain. Right. And that's the purpose of reclamation to put it back so that it's is, stable. So what it was, so that you don't change the rivers and stuff like that. But when they process the coal, there are, there are a lot of different chemicals. There's a lot of stuff that's used to process that, and sometimes accidents happen. So they they do their best. When a company, when there's a spillage of runoff of this material or whatever, uh, the companies are fined heavily, and they are responsible for doing the cleanup to make this happen. What about as far as stability of the earth works? Um, like, are you, let's say, mountaintop removal? Are you more prone to uh, mudslides, for example, with well, one type of mining than another? Well, that's what the reclamation theoretically should do, is when they put it back, they just don't put the dirt back. Right. They replant grass. They replant trees. So there's not really one that's more environmentally or dangerous or more dangerous to the neighboring community than another it's all pretty that that would be a true statement they're all they're all equally there's all risk and and there's hazard and it's it's there and that's one of the controversies of that and then there's the fact that coal has to be burned and there you can put in scrubbers and they try to make it as clean as they can but we'll talk about Sure, that we'll get into that, bit, yeah. yeah. Now, working in safety conditions of the miners uh, that Steve mentioned of working underground and so on, um, as well as pay and benefits, as in most industries, is the source of conflict. 
Workers always want better conditions and pay, and many organize unions for collective bargaining rights. Obviously, these wants of the workers or the labor force is generally at conflict with the companies that are trying to mine the coal as cost-effectively as possible. Now, in our story, miners wanted the protection of a contract, so they wanted to organize under the protection of a union. Well, the company didn't see it that way and was very bitterly opposed to the miners organizing under a union. The miners exercised the only option they felt they had, and they walked off the job. Now, the strike was nearly a decades-long conflict, lasting from 1931 to 1939, and it was costing the coal companies tons of money. So, of course, they pulled out all the stops to force the miners to go back to work. Now, that included threats and intimidation and the actual use of violence, and that's how we get to the name of Bloody Harlan. Now, no one knows for sure how many people lost their lives during this time, but there are estimates anywhere from a few dozen to hundreds. And it can't be proven because people were killed and their bodies were just hauled away. Mm. And so they, they just don't have an accurate count of yeah. how many people were killed during this. State and federal troops would occupy the county more than a half a dozen times. Two acclaimed folk singers would emerge and union membership would go up or down with miners in the nation's most anti-labor coal county eventually winning a union contract. So let's get in the story of Bloody Harlan. Now, to be clear, so this was approximately 10 years of the strike going on, but it wasn't one long, continuous strike. At times, partial agreements were reached between the miners and the companies, and the miners would go back to work. Sometimes miners were forced back to work because... They had to eat and they had to feed their families. In the aftermath of the Great Depression, Harlan County coal owners and operators, in an effort to expand the national dependency on their fuel, chose to sell below cost. On February 16, 1931, in order to prevent operating at a loss, the Harlan County Coal Operators Operators Association cut miners' wages by 10%. Yikes. Yeah, 10%. So reacting to the unrest created within Harlan's already impoverished labor force, the United Mine Workers of America, or we refer to it as the UMW, attempted to uh, organize the county's miners. Employees who were known by their bosses to be union members were initially fired and evicted from the company-owned homes. We'll talk more about those later. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go into a little bit of detail about that. However... Before long, most of the remaining workforce had gone on strike out of sympathy. Only three of Harlan's incorporated towns in Harlan County were not owned by the mines, and hungry and evicted workers and their families sought refuge in these towns, primarily the town of Everts. Now, time for some more background. Now, this this is a complicated story. Coal companies would establish their own town or their communities in these coal regions, and they were often referred to as coal camps. Sounds like a good deal, but uh, you know it sounds like the company's taking an interest in their community. But but those coal camps, they're not exactly like the planned communities is what we think of today. The coal company owned the land and the houses, so the houses were rented to the miners and the families. So, I mean, once again, it sounds like a pretty good deal because you're, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. 
Um, there was a company store within the coal camp, which sold food to the families and, and needed supplies. But this is where the coal companies got pretty ingenious because miners were paid in company script. And the only place you could use the script was at the company store. And most of the time, their rent was automatically withheld from their pay. And needless to say, the pay wasn't exactly what we would refer to as a living wage. You may have heard the song, I owe my soul to the company store. The store would give credit, and that was a method to keeping or forcing the employee to keep working because you're being underpaid. You're not being paid in real money. You're being paid in company money that is only good at the company store that is jacking up prices more than what you can afford, but it's all right. We'll give you some credit, but you can only pay it back with company script. So you have to picture how remote and isolated Harlan County is for this to work. Now, my parents grew up in a nearby county in Kentucky during this during this same time period. And I remember my dad telling stories that in the entire county, there was only one telephone in the entire county, and that was at a store in town. And so I, I bring that out only to see how isolated these so, these remote counties. Very remote. How, um, yeah, how isolated they actually were. So it's it's pretty hard to relate to those conditions today. Um, but I mean, you can still see in, I mean, back in the Hills, it's still pretty isolated even now, like they've built highways and stuff, but it's still pretty isolated. And I do have to say that in some coal camps or towns, life was pretty good. There were schools, there were recreation centers, movies, sometimes a pool. In Wheelwright, Kentucky in Floyd County, they had a Wheelwright was a coal mining town, and this is one of these towns you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The company even had a golf course for the miners to golf at. Well, there you go. So, yeah. so they weren't always bad, but back to Bloody Harlan, which was that bad. Uh, in the non-coal towns, they found sympathy with spurned politicians and business owners who wished to see the company stores vanish because obviously. These miners can't come spend their script at other stores, so they're taking business away from other local merchants. The conditions were set for a major dispute. Now, at the peak of the first strike, 5,800 miners were idle and only 900 were working. The strike breakers were protected by private mine guards with full county deputy privileges who were legally able to exercise their powers with impunity outside the walls of their employers. So... Think about that for a minute. Um, private mine guards with full police privileges. Now, strike breakers, for those that don't know, are people that keep working despite the strike, um, and they're generally referred to as scabs, which is a common term in any industry when you have people that cross the picket lines and go to work instead of help, you know, supporting the union. Um, now, many times, strike breakers were people hired after the strike to keep the mine operational. This brought even more bad blood into an already tense situation. Strike breakers were protected by Sheriff J.H. Blair, a man who made his allegiance to the mine owners clear and said, quote, I did all in my power to aid the operators. Understanding the politics, some might say money was exchanged for his loyalty. Maybe. I don't know. Nothing came up about that. So some will say that he was doing his sworn duty. But the citizens of Harlan, for their part, lost any illusions that they might have held about impartiality in law enforcement. Songwriter Florence Reese said, 
Sheriff J.H. Blair and his men came to our house in search of Sam. That's my husband. He was one of the union leaders. I was home alone with our seven children. They ransacked the whole house and then kept watch outside waiting to shoot Sam down when he came back. But he didn't come home that night. Afterward, I tore a sheet from a calendar on the wall and wrote the words, To which side are you on? To an old Baptist hymn, Lay the Lily Low. My songs always goes to the underdog, to the worker. I'm one of them, and I feel like I've got to be with them. There's no such thing as neutral. You have to be on one side or the other. Some people say, I don't take sides. I'm neutral. There's no such thing. In your mind, you're on one side or the other. Now, that song, Which Side Are You On? That's a very famous folk song, Mm -hmm. and I would love to have been able to play it, but I'm just going to have to ask you to Google it, go to YouTube, and play it, and you can actually hear this lady sing it. It's pretty mournful i'd say would be the right word yeah but it's it's got it's, pr- it's pretty forceful it's lyrics it's gritty yeah and florence reed also said in harlan county there wasn't no neutral if you wasn't a gun thug you was a union man you had to be so very very polarizing yeah time and yeah. place to you be couldn't, alive you couldn't pick sides you had you were, to pick sides. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. You had to pick yeah, a side. Yeah, you couldn't be impartial. There, yeah. there wasn't neutral. Neutral yeah, was you, not you, a thing. You couldn't go to work and have all the people trying to organize like you. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it just wasn't happening. So, strikers exchanged gunshots with private guards and local law enforcement, and strike breakers were set upon and beaten. The most violent, unprovoked attack by mine workers occurred on May 5th, 1931, and became known as the Battle of Everts. Numerous forces and factors um, were involved in the Battle of Everts. Opposing the miners were the heavily armed private police ordered by the company to break up the strike, while other associations chose not to become involved. And this is why there's bad blood and why we'll talk a little later why unions ebb and flow. The United Mine Workers of America considered helping the miners, but once it realized the amount of resources required, decided not to offer their support. The Red Cross also decided not to offer any support, saying that the strike was an industrial dispute which did not involve them. It it was dangerous. People were getting shot and people were getting killed. Yeah, which, I mean, I can understand if you are from the Red Cross and your job, it's, I... The Red Cross goes into some pretty dangerous places. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I don't, but yeah. this seems like it's more of a private matter. Well, that's what they said to, to stay out of yeah, this. Yeah, so I kind of understand where the Red Cross is coming from. But this, there's no winning. Like, it's a really challenging thing because I'm sure some of the strike breakers went back to work because they had to. Like, they're, they had, you know, like, um, Florence Reese said she had seven children. You know, if you if you have seven mouths to feed plus yours and your your wife's, that's a powerful incentive. But then also the strike breakers were they were not all good guys. Well, I mean, they, they were the, most of them were hired after the strike started and the unions or not the unions, the company hired these men to go in there because they were willing to do violence. Yeah, and fight so, on the side of the company. So it's, I it's a tough how, situation. Yeah, and I wonder how many of them were, you know, I'm sure for every strike breaker that just wanted 
money to feed their family, there was probably one or two that just enjoyed being, that were just mean. Well, they liked to fight back in the day. Yeah, and just wanted an excuse to beat people up and make money at the same time. But you got to remember the people like, say, of Harlan, who did that, that you're saying could have been the strike breakers, they have to live in this community. And they're going to be known that they were a strike breaker. So I don't think that was so much of an issue. I think the, the folks of Harlan... It's complicated. Yeah, we're, we're, we're on the union side because you didn't want to say, you know, you didn't want to go back to work after everything settled with your buddies who were strong union and you were you what were they the called the scab. scab. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't think there was so much of that. It was people that the company yeah. brought in. Now, the Battle of Everts began on the morning of May 5th, 1931. The company had ordered a motorcade to drive to Harlan to deliver goods to those scabs there, so the non-union miners that had just been hired to replace those on strike. And the motorcade consisted of just three cars with a sheriff's deputy in each one. And the deputies expected violence, and sure enough, they got it. <laughs> the striking miners waited for the motorcade near the Everts Railroad, and as the motorcade approached them, a single shot rang out. Now, no one knows who fired it, but each side blamed the other. The motorcade halted, and Deputy Jim Daniels jumped out and hid behind a rock. Now, Daniels was one of the most hated anti-union deputies in the county. He raised his head to fire at the miners, but as soon as he did, he was fatally shot and killed. The exchange of gunfire lasted for only 15 minutes, but with an estimated 1,000 shots being fired. That's a lot of bullets. When it ended, three deputies and one miner lay dead. The aftermath of this battle led to a wider strikes in the Harlan County area. Coal companies refused to back down while the Red Cross refused to give aid due to a policy of staying neutral during those industrial disputes. After about a month and a half of strikes, workers reported back on June 17th because of unresponsive negotiation partners and starvation due to having no money to spend on food. Eight miners ended up receiving life in jail for conspiracy to murder for the actions that took place on May 5th. Well, the state of Kentucky couldn't just let that lie. In response to the attack, the Kentucky National Guard was sent in to restore peace and order. The strikers thought they were getting protection, but upon replacing the deputized mine guards, the National Guard broke the picket lines instead. So they turned out... They, they were there, and they protected the company's interest. On May 24th, a union rally was tear-gassed, and Sheriff Blair rescinded the county's members' right to assemble. By June 17th, the last mine had returned to work. No concessions were given by the mine operators and the U.M. United Mine Workers. The membership plummeted because the, 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 the employees, the miners, thought they'd been sold out, and the union didn't stand up to support them. So... They lost a lot of membership. In the wake of the United Mine Workers' failure, the openly Communist National Mine Miners Union, or the NMU, made a brief play for Harlan County. Though most of the workers felt disillusioned with the organized labor structure, then the, the communist radical ideology gained some traction. Ten local lodges sprang up before the uh, Harlan County NMU was officially chartered. The smaller but more passionate NMU made greater relief efforts than the UMW had, opening several soup kitchens throughout the county. Ultimately, 
Their attempt at strikes while weakened surrounding counties were utter failures in Harlan County, where only a fraction of the workforce walked out in 1931 and 1932. Ultimately, a combination of events broke the NMU's foothold. Local labor organizers, many of them clergy, learned of the communist leadership's animosity towards religion and denounced the organization, as we mentioned earlier. Well, I don't know if we'd mentioned earlier, but faith is a big, big part of the people of eastern Kentucky, and especially at this time. And the clergy, the people were not going to have these communist thoughts with denouncing their religion. And it, it just wasn't, they weren't going to stand for that. So, you know, they, they, again, they had, they picked sides with this young communist league organizer, Harry Sims was killed in Harlan and the American red cross and local charities who had been unwilling to take sides in a labor dispute, uh, began giving aid to blacklisted miners who were unemployable as the NMU's financial troubles necessitated the closing of its soup kitchens. Under the auspices of the National Industrial Recovery Act, which promoted the right to organize one's workplace and outlawed discrimination and firing based on union membership, approximately half of Harlan's coal mines, those in the Harlan County Coal Operators Association, were run as open shops from October 27, 1933 until March 31st, 1935. Now, an open shop allows union membership, but does not mandate it. However, wages at these mines came into step with the rest of the nation. And despite headway by the unions, the battle for Harlan County between labor and capital continued in earnest. Sheriff Blair was voted out of office in 1933 and then died in 1934. He was replaced by T.R. Middleton, a candidate who ran on a pro-union platform. The Kentucky National Guard was once again called in on December 8, 1934, requested by UMW organizers who had been threatened by bosses and deputies. The troops promptly escorted the Union men to the county line, and when the United States Supreme Court struck down the legislation's pro-Union National Recovery Administration portion, shops with Union presence in Harlan dwindled from 18 to 1. Where the NIRA had been toothless in Harlan, the Wagner Act of 1935 proved itself a far greater thorn in the side of Harlan County's mine operators. It outlawed yellow dog contracts, company unions, blacklists, and discrimination on basis of union activity, all tactics employed by coal companies. Now, a yellow dog contract is basically where the employees agree to work for the company without union representation, and essentially they sign a contract with the company that they agree to because they believe it's fair. So while coal interest across the nation fell into step with the new legislation in 1935, Harlan was as resistant to federal meddling as it had ever been. Now, all these acts we've been talking about were part of um, Roosevelt's New Deal and how he they started organizing and doing things like that. Mm. So, but that is a whole nother story. <laughs> so, on July seventh, a group of deputies, enraged at a public celebration of the Wagner Act, dispersed the crowd by beating several miners. That'll do it. Nineteen thirty-five proved to be a very turbulent turbulent year, even for Harlan. Troops were deployed to maintain order in the county three separate times. On September 29th, troops were dispatched on behalf of the miners for the first time 
in the Harlan County War. The governor referring to the beatings and harassment at the hands of the mine guards as the worst reign of terror in the history of the county. He protected the miners despite the fact that a bomb had killed Harlan County attorney Elman Middletown several weeks prior. Author and activist Theodore Dreiser conducted an investigation under the auspices of the National Committee for the Defense of Political Prisoners of the American Communist Party. With contributions by John Dos Passos, Samuel Ornitz, and others, Dreisner produced a field report called Harlan Miners Speak, Report on Terrorism in the Kentucky Coal Fields. The Dreiser Committee also discovered the labor folk singer Aunt Molly Jackson and her younger half-brother Jim Garland, putting them on a tour of 38 states to raise funds for the strikers. And as we said earlier, it's not really known how many people lost their lives during this time period, which is when Harlan County, Kentucky, was then labeled as Bloody Harlan. Now, you would think this is the end of all this, and labor and management all got along until this very day. No, I would not think that. No. Well, it didn't (laughs) happen. Labor disputes continued through the 50s and 60s with many walkouts. In the 70s, Another major labor issue arose between the companies and the miners, which resulted in another major strike in Harlan County. During this strike, the United Mine Workers held an election for the president of the United Mine Workers. Now, listen how bloody and how... Yeah, it's it's kind of ugly. Yeah, how this gets. The election was between Joseph Jock Yablonski and Tony Boyle. Now, Boyle had been the vice president of the United Mine Workers under the famous John L. Lewis, who had been the president of the United Mine Workers for 40 years. A long time. Yeah, so so he held a lot of power. Oh, yeah. And he would just, you know, think of the mob. This is how Mm -hmm. these guys kind of operated right there. He remained vice president under Thomas Kennedy after Lewis retired, but was generally considered to be the guy that actually ran the union. He had the brains. Okay. To, uh, to make this happen. Gotcha. Kennedy's health failed and Boyle became president. Yablonski and his wife and daughter were executed in their Pennsylvania home. Um, police suspected and arrested Boyle, who went to jail for the murders in a scheme of hiring hitmen and shady financial transactions to cover up the $20,000 he paid to have the hit done. So there was an exchange of money here and there. It's crazy to me that he feels like he needs to do this when he's essentially already running the thing. He he wasn't running things. He thought he was going to be able to run the things like Lewis was able to. Mm -hmm. So, but he didn't have the, I don't want to say the clout. He didn't have the oomph behind him that Lewis Mm. did. So he wasn't. So he's weak. and, And yeah. And Yablonski you know, he kind of had the brains to set things yeah. going, the plan to set things going, but he didn't have the power behind it to make things happen. Interesting. Yablonski, on the other hand, grew up with this as a miner, and he had that toughness. He's like and the he people's had, vote. Yeah, he was like the people's, yeah, the miners guy. Gotcha. Like that, where Boyle had been pretty much company a company man. A com- well, a politician. Well, we'll talk about company man in a second. So. Boyle also had 100,000 ballots printed and stuffed in the ballot box prior to election. Was it was it a Dominion voting box? I don't, think, no, I don't think it was a Dominion voting box. I think it was just a <laughs> shoe box. A and, shoe box. And they had these things stuffed in there. Gotcha. All yeah. right, then. So, so, yeah, 
election controversy has been going on for a long, oh, long no time. Kidding. And not just in politics, in, in coal miner politics, too. So there's lots of controversy about Boyle, who it is said got too comfy with the mine owners to the point when the Farmington mine in West Virginia exploded on November 20th, 1968, and 78 men were killed. Boyle ended up calling it, it, it was just an unfortunate accident and praised the company on its excellent safety records when it wasn't. There were it's a not lot. not really what you want to hear from the union guy. No, no. And Boyle never met with the families. And just as a side note, and I don't want to say it as a side note, but as an interesting piece to this story, 19 men still remain sealed inside the mine. They couldn't recover wow. the bodies and they had to seal the mine. Wow. Yeah, no wonder he didn't feel safe as the president. Yeah. Now, this strike is well documented in a documentary called Harlan County, USA, and we strongly encourage you to watch this to get a better feel for the people in Harlan County and the conditions that coal miners work in. Uh, it's it's a really, really good film. Do you know, you said, didn't you watch it today? Yes, I did. You rewatched it today? Where, mm-hmm. did you, where did you find it? I found it on HBO Max, and if you go to HBO Max, there are different hubs, so mm-hmm. it was on Turner Classic Movies, oh, so where I if, pulled it up and watched it. It was free. Yeah, so if you don't have HBO Max, though, a lot of um, TCM stuff is, like, free on demand. So check there. I think I've also seen it on Netflix. I'm sure you can find it on Prime. It's pretty readily available. Uh, and if but, a picture is worth a 1,000 words, then you can really understand why it's difficult to paint an accurate picture of our story. Because You, you need to see the faces of these people. You do. and uh, And it's a lot of firsthand... Um, documentation from like the seventies and even a little bit before, I think. Uh, And miners are still working to produce coal that's needed today. Yeah. People are talking about other forms of energy, but coal produces about 20% of the energy in the United States. And aside from energy, you can't make steel and iron without coal. It's used and needed in a lot of other daily uses we take for granted, like the production of cement and carbon fibers and foams. So, yes, we have to find better ways to safely and cleanly mine coal, um, better technology to make it cleaner so that it's not, you know, a source of pollution and a source of, of danger. But coal is not I mean, going to go away. It, it's not. And it you, can't. There's it, it no, can't go we away. need it for yeah, too many things. We have to have coal. So, you know, whatever, wherever your feeling is on the environment, we, we have to have coal. I mean, yeah, and we do acknowledge have, it has to be made cleaner. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, I would absolutely encourage you to kind of do your research and educate yourself. Um, and absolutely. If you are passionate about the environment, push this towards the top of your priority list because like we said, you can't have steel without coal. You can't have iron without coal. And those are two products that we use very heavily worldwide. So yes, absolutely. We should be pushing for cleaner coal mining and cleaner ways, easier ways and safer ways of getting the coal that we actually need. Yeah. So the next time you flip on your light switch, um, you get in your car or other products that you use that has steel in it, think about the miners that are risking their lives daily to produce that coal. Unionized mines in Kentucky ebb and flow. To the best of my knowledge, a report from Fox Business News said that as of right now, there are no union mines in Kentucky today. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Harlan's Depression-era struggle turned out to be one of the most bitter and protracted labor disputes in American history. Yeah. Now, it, they will ebb and flow. Right, right now, there are no union minds, the best of our knowledge, but time will go on mm-hmm. and someone will go in and they'll try to organize. And it would not surprise me at all if we have more strikes and yeah. Things like this. Hopefully, you know, no one will die and there'll be more of a Hopefully negotiation type thing. But yeah, and there's more. That's, that's not the history of the miners. That's Hopefully, there's more ethics not, in the coal companies that they want to treat their workers better. Um, but I don't know. Some some companies are just out for the bottom dollar and... And some aren't. And we don't, some yeah, aren't. We don't so, wanna, yeah, we don't Yeah, wanna, absolutely. No, we're not yeah, slamming we, we it. Don't I don't know like anything that. about... Yeah, we, we, <laughs> I don't know anything about the coal companies yeah. that are in, in business right now. Um, but hopefully they are treating their workers fairly and ethically. And uh, and maybe we won't see any more of um, this kind of really extreme back and forth in the future. Yeah. So that is the story of... Bloody Harlan. Bloody Harlan, Kentucky. Yeah, it, it's complicated. It was dangerous. Lots of people lost their lives, all for the sake of a cause. And the cause was better working conditions, safer working conditions, and the ability to work and feed their families. Yeah. But on the company side, it was we need to extract the coal as most in the most cost-effective manner that we can. Yeah. And many times that came at the cost of people's lives. Yeah, it's a tough one. There's oh, no, that's, sure. that's not a tough one no, at all I mean, right it's, there. Yeah. It's, it's not, I mean, it's, you know, you have to, it reminds me of Elon Musk. We, we watched Saturday does, Night Live. How does this remind you of Elon well, Musk? We, we watched Saturday Night Live last night where Elon Musk hosted. And, and so, you know, he notoriously in the last week or two has said that he wants to colonize Mars and that people are going to lose their lives in the process. It is kind of the same thing in coal mining that unfortunately with the technology that we are using and the methods that we are using today, people are going to lose their lives in the process of mining coal. It is going to happen and it is unfortunate and it is awful and we need to do something to improve it. But that is where we stand at this moment in time. Yeah. And I will say that mine safety has improved dramatically over the years. I mean, it, it's just like anything, like if an airplane crashes, there's a lot of study. There's a lot of research to go on sure. that goes on to figure out what happened. Because, look, I can't imagine that the company, they're willing to take risk, I guess. But yeah. let's talk about Not, back in the day. It's a calculated risk. Yeah, but I don't think they want any of their employees to lose their lives. Oh no. Yeah, it's like no, your, I'm your not example. That, but. Yeah, it's like your example to Elon Musk. Okay, he said, you know, people are going, to, but they're going to walk into that knowing sure. of the danger and the risk. Right. But let's reduce that risk as much as possible so that life isn't lost unnecessarily. Absolutely. Okay. I hope I said that right. Yeah, I hope we, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think If not, you know what I mean. We want, I, yeah. we want the safest working conditions for the, Every, for yeah. the miners and for yeah. all the workers. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, there you go. Bloody Harlan. All right. It will, quite a story. It is. It, it is. is. It yeah, is. Please, please watch that movie. Yeah, it's really, it's a very fascinating movie. A couple hours, um, but well worth your time. 
Yeah. So we've already talked about what's coming up, yep. our project this week. You've spilled the beans. Well, because I'm tired of keeping it under wraps. So it's called the 937 Podcast. Kim, Kim has no patience. I don't. It's called the 937 Podcast. We will hopefully have a trailer out for it soon so that you will know a little bit more about it. Um, I'm not really spilling too many beans. We're not really talking about what it's about or anything. Not going into no. too much great detail. Um, but hopefully, you know, if you are in the local Dayton area, you'll be able to support it. And we thank and it will you. be beneficial to you. Yeah, and we thank you for There's all a of clue. the yeah, and we thank you for all of the folks that have supported uh, an hour of your life and continue to support us. And an hour of your life will continue because oh, yeah, absolutely. we like we like telling these stories. Oh, we love an hour of your life. We're not going. This show's not going anywhere. This is this is our our baby. So it's not going anywhere. We're just adding to the family. So Kim, how do people get hold of us? We can go to our website for one thing at. An hour of your life.com. You can email us at a lost hour at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you just look for an hour of your life. That's pretty simple. Cool. We're pretty, everywhere. Pretty, pretty simple, and that's the way it goes. So remember, please help us out. Like we always say, this is a hobby. We don't make a penny off this. Nope. But share it because we think that the story's we tell her my mom happy <laughs> my mother's mom day mom likes it she thinks the stories are interesting my mom thinks i'm cool yeah so <laughs> okay so anything else i think that's it okay so from our studios in sugar creek township thanks for spending an hour of your life with us Sources this week include labornotes.org, smithsonian.org, Fox Business, Wikipedia, Battle of Everts, OhioValleyResource.org, and ParallelInitiatives.com. And my mom is a source this week who provided input on the coal camps. Thanks, Mom. <laughs>